All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? How's it going? Uh, this is Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the show. If you're new to the show, glad to have you. What's happening? Uh, I don't know where you're listening, but I hope everything's going okay. All right? We've got a pretty, a pretty amazing show today. Uh, Central Wilson, uh, the amazing, brilliant cultural critic and writer has uh, just written a new book well it's out it's been out a little bit it's called fear and clothing unbuckling american style it's available anywhere you get books that's happening she's going to be here uh, i love her i haven't talked to her in a long time last time i talked to her was in new york it's always an amazing conversation very funny very smart exciting it was exciting also what else is going on with me talking about reading if you never read my book attempting normal there's a special right now for the next two weeks it's on sale for a dollar 99 everywhere ebooks are sold buck 99 that's a real ego boost everywhere ebooks are sold so go do that get attempting normal right now uh there's a special for the next couple weeks if you have not read that all right and and also also no, what else Zach Valifagakis? Zach Val- yes, Zach Valifagakis uh, dropped by the garage the other day. Always nice to see Zach. I've not seen him since I talked to him. I, maybe I ran into him a couple times, but he was on a very early WTF, and uh, he's got a show, a new show produced by Louis C.K., who I also got to spend some time with, not here on the mics, but uh, we went out and had a nice meal, me and the Louis. Uh, but, uh, the show that, uh, they co-created it, it's called Baskets, premieres tonight on FX with the, uh, with new episodes coming at you every Thursday. So that was, uh, that was fun to talk to Zach. Uh, so it's a pretty packed show and I'm kind of tired. We have begun production of Marin season four. And I got to tell you, man, the first two days went great on this block. Um, got a lot of the, the same crew back there all the writer guys are there joe kessler's on the camera lynn shelton the uh, amazing lynn shelton is directing the first two episodes i've never worked with her as a director it's been phenomenal and it's uh i got to admit it's uh, pretty funny it might be it might be the funniest season it's 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 a bit dark it's going to be a show not like the show you saw before in a way it's a completely new show uh, i'll say again for those of you who uh who have kept up with uh, Marin. You can see it on Netflix now, The all of them. I think you can see all three seasons. At the end of season three, it was not things were not great for the character of Marin. So we start there. We start a year here. Here's, here's what I'll give you. We start a year after that last episode of Marin on season three. So it's a year later from whatever might have happened starting the day after that finale. All right? That's that's what I'll tell you. That could go either way. But uh, think it through. Make your assumptions. All the scripts will look real good. We got them all done before I started shooting because uh, it was important to do that because I, I don't really have time to uh, be rewriting on set. And uh, and I, I and I require less grooming this year. That, that's another hint I'm going to give you. Uh, and that's all. That's all I'm going to say. I I I don't want to say any more other than I'm I'm heavily employed right now, and of course we do the podcast throughout the shoot. So you know, I squeeze it in. 
have some conversations with some people, get on the mic here. Uh, but I'm a little exhausted. I'll, I'll tell you how exhausted I am. Last night, I was just, I got back from the shoot. I was sitting there having a bowl of cereal. And uh, and my two cats, Monkey and LaFonda, were on the couch. And I said, uh, I said, hey, you two fuckers. And they looked up at me at the same time. And I laughed for a little while. Tired, punchy. That's where I'm at. That got me going. That was all it took. Yeah. Also, uh, Glenn Fry died. And uh, he was in the Eagles. And I know a lot of people that kind of are like, ah, the Eagles. And I think one of the reasons some of us think that is because uh, we've heard the Eagles a lot. But I got to be honest with you. Some of those songs, like the song Take It to the Limit, somewhere in there, like maybe with um, with Stairway to Heaven and a couple others, I think I was one of my first slow dances. And that has a profound impact. There, you always heard the Eagles all through your life. And this guy was a great songwriter, a good singer, and a great guitar player. I mean, it was just, it's to the point where I don't even really know how classic rock stations are going to do a tribute to the Eagles because every other song is generally an Eagles song. That's how many uh, hit songs they had. But uh, it's a sad thing, and, and I do want to... Uh, to give him and them their props because um, a couple of those songs were uh, pretty powerful uh, in the mind of a junior high kid uh, back in the 70s. And and that, uh, so R.I.P. Glenn Fry. Anyways, Zach Galifianoodles, Zach Galifianaki, Zach Galifianakis uh, co-created the uh, show Baskets with Louis C.K. and he dropped by. We, uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. So this is me and Zach Galifianakis. No, I know comics have a need to, uh, you know, to keep, uh, to do something. I, do you know what that is? I mean, you seem to have managed to. I'm good. I'm with you. I'm like, necessarily. I, I'm a, I don't like to do, I like my life better than my profession. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I need to get there. I don't know if I'm quite there because I don't know what my life looks like. I mean, Well, you, I think people come to this town and they, yeah. they get hijacked by, by this way you're supposed to live your entertainment life yeah it's not attractive to me whatsoever has it ever been no <laughs> going to the, the sky bar and whatever people do it's yeah. good to see you i feel like i you know i immediately felt um when we saw each other at the front door after you kicked open the uh, kicked over the cat bowl that well why do you put your cat bowl right in the it's a wild, wild cat it's like it's not really my cat oh you know, it's, it's like it's a, a feral it's a feral that you know i feed out there um, but I, I know it's a problem, and I apologize for that. But I felt right away that we we're getting along better. Oh, well, you always – see, you always have this thing with people, I think, Mark. No, just with you sometimes. With me only? No, that no, you don't no. think we get along? No, I know we get along, but sometimes, yeah. like, like sometimes I, I've – and maybe it's true. In the past, uh, there, there, maybe this happened. If you knew you were going to do this, maybe in the past you'd be like, oh, I got to – okay, go, go talk to Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean but that's your own insecurities right yeah, yeah yeah i feel like that for people too i feel like oh shoot someone has to come talk to me i feel bad for them no no i think that sometimes i've been uh, unnecessarily bitchy but i feel better now i'm just telling you that at the outset well i always liked and i think your if you want to call it whatever anger was always so funny yeah and Right, you're the, and that and makes was, me that there, makes me want to do it with you. Well, anger makes me laugh. Like I don't, 
it just does. It always has. <laughs> That's why I liked it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you and I have no. No, I, I look I, up to you. I yeah, I look have. up to you too. I, and it, oh. Yeah, I like. It took me a while, but I think <laughs> it took. I think you're funny. <laughs> it takes a while. I just it remember, takes a while to, to like me. But there was this one time, and I, maybe I should <sighs> say it. Because I wonder I, if I know I, what you're talking about. But I wonder if I if I might have covered it like years ago when we did. You actually were one of the first. Yeah, I got to thank you. I mean, your podcast that we did in Albuquerque was really one of the essential ones towards building an audience. So I appreciate that. Well, you know, I love to build podcasts. Yeah, I know you do. From I the did, ground up. Uh, Marcel Marceau's podcast. That's, you know, a lot of people aren't getting that. No. It's because it's weird. It's just, it's just one person. It's just me going, are you, what, you're skateboarding now? <laughs> Wait, he doesn't say anything. You're in a you're in a box. I, I know you're pulling something. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there was one time that I always felt bad about. Well, it was not even about bad. It was like it, it was it was at the old Largo, mm-hmm. and I was yeah, I didn't live here, and I was bitchy, and mm-hmm. you know I was here, and I was going to go do this dumb set at this dumb club where everyone's doing these cool things. Uh-huh. And it was in that right by the door, like before you go on stage. Right. And I think you were wearing like a, a George Washington outfit. Uh-huh. You had a like a, had a get up. It was a get, but it was a full get up. You had, you'd gone to it. You'd outfitted yourself. You were a founding father or something. I was a stand up comic from the 1700s. Oh, all right. And there was just this is beat where I walk in. You look at me. You're about to go on stage, and I was just sort of like, really, it takes that much. You're gonna. <laughs> you... I know. Look, I I'm not. Above doing prop humor, I don't. I don't. But have I felt the... ba- I felt bad about that because it was funny, and I could not see the funny at the time. Well, I you know, not. you're the first stand-up I ever met in the laundromat in a laundromat, in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, it was a weird thing. I don't even know. Like in retrospect, I'm not sure why I was there. I had I been away that long to where I needed to wash clothes. I mean, it didn't pack no, properly. It was, it was in North Carolina. I know, and you were doing the Charlie Goodnight. Yes, yeah, I know. And it was walking distance from wherever right. you must have been staying. Right. And you walked in. And, and I lived near the laundromat or right. maybe in the laundromat. And uh, <laughs> I saw you and I was like, I've seen him on television. And I just asked you about yeah. stand up. Yeah. I remember that. I remember I, when I was living in New York and I was contemplating trying to figure out if I could do stand up yeah. and get it. And I remember I was, I was a nanny in New York and Al Franken's kid was a uh, you were a nanny. I was a nanny in New York, and uh, did I know that? How, uh, how do you do? Don't you need a license for that or something? No, I mean, no. but how do you? What, how well, do you, the the family wanted a male nanny because she had two boys. Yeah, and they were older. Yeah, kind of rambunctious. I think, like in their teens. No, they were like seven, and I can't remember. And how they seven. find you? Uh, I put up an ad at NYU. At the NYU, uh-huh. no, I didn't go there. Right, and they called me. Right, a wonderful, uh, nice family. Uh, but, but I, I remember the the school in which I would pick the kid up. Uh, Al Franken would pick his his son up there, or child. Yeah. I don't know. And I walked up to him and I asked for his advice, and he said, "Well, to be honest with you, you're probably not funny." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with him. Well, he was. <laughs> he was being, and, and at the time, I was. What did that mean? But he was saying, "Look, a lot of people think they're funny, right? And they're not, and yeah. you should know that." Yeah. And uh, turns out he was right. <laughs> but you made a great living. But it doesn't out of matter, it. right? Yeah. yeah. You made a great career out of it. But that thing about, um, like, I always appreciate the fact that you don't seem to, uh, like, we were talking about at the beginning, you don't feel compelled to do stand up right now. No, I do feel compelled to do stand up. And you fight it. Or what do you, you mean? do it? Well, I mean, I you do don't it. Tour. I mean, I did it two. Two, I just did it two nights ago, but I mean, I do it as much. But 
to me, if you don't do it often, yeah. your rhythm is off. Oh yeah, I know. And uh-huh. and I haven't I haven't done it often enough of late to get my rhythm back. So it's 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 just one of those things that you have to practice. I feel like you have yeah, to do oh, it yeah, constantly. Do, right. And where'd you do it at? Largo. Yeah, with on someone's show? Or you did a whole uh, night? I did it with uh, Regina Spector, John uh, Mulaney, and Judd. Regina Spector, the... Apatel. Oh, for, oh, and Regina Spector, the singer? Singer. And, oh, singer. so it was one of Apatel's uh, things? Yeah. And then we're, there was a Q&A after with mm-hmm. me and Judd uh, for some yeah. reason. And uh, so there was a few questions. And the last question, this woman raises her, <laughs> yeah. raises her hand and she goes, yes, can Regina Spector come out and sing another song? <laughs> Did he let her? I, oh, I got so livid at it. You did not. I fake livid. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Fake livid. We are talking. You... <laughs> I was so offended. I was so happy she asked that. Because did she I come out of... and sing one? Oh, she sang one, yeah. She oh, that's sang... good. Oh, yeah. Are we working in the same building? Have you been, this new show, what is it, Baskets? Yeah, it's called Baskets. And we heard at the beginning when we were putting the writer's room together, like, you know, Baskets is here. Zach's a And Dave show. Anthony writes on your show? Yeah, he does. And he performs on it. He's taking it over like a cancer. Oh, it, like, a, <laughs> like a cancer. <laughs> yeah. We have a good chemistry together. Yeah, I like you know? Dave a lot. Yeah, he always speaks highly of you. He does? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, you, he, uh, he mentioned to me that you lost some weight. You look good. He mentioned it to you. No, what is your assessment of it? Are you just saying? No, no, you look good. You know, like he, he said, like I'm, it makes me uncomfortable. But I, I'm, you know, I'm not throwing him under the bus. But he's, he's having a hard time adjusting to you looking healthy. Apparently. Uh, well, he, if it makes him uh, feel better, it's the reason I'm thin is because I'm dying. Oh well, that I'll tell him that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go into that at all? No, it's not that important. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? What did you stop doing? Things? Uh, you know, I. I mean, I stopped drinking. That helps. You did? Oh, yeah. I don't drink. At all? Mm-mm. Wow. Yeah. When did that happen? Uh, Well, I had one of those nights that I've been looking for for a while, and I woke up, and I was like, okay, that, that should be probably the end of my drinking life. How long ago was that? Uh, Four years ago in March or three. It's hard for me to... I, and then I drank at my wedding, and I drank at one other wedding, Bobby Tisdale, who you yeah. know. And that was, and I gave myself those breaks. And I just, I just, you know, it's hard to, I was a good drinker, but when you get older, it, you, your focus goes. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's too much. It's, really? And it's, it's, and I also think God, I, I mean, as I hate to, I think we're kind of trained through Madison Avenue and all yeah. that. Like, that's the way to be a man and all that horseshit. Through Madison Avenue? Well, Did we know, just time travel? You mean no, I mean, you know, the, the, no, I like the, it. the advertisers yeah. out there. No, no, I, I, I think that there was something put in place. Like, if you watch Mad Men, it's all about that. Those yeah. guys were drinking all the time. Yeah. It was set in motion then. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, Mad Men's not a, it's, it's not a documentary. No, it is a documentary. Well, Am I watching it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice looking documentary. It is. And I was surprised how much access they had. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, how do you get all that access? How did they do that? fascinating and, and there were color cameras back then it was all strange, amazing strange. it was all amazing and real dedication the director and crew to stay with that have group people, of people have people come here to ask you about the president uh, are you bored with people asking you how that no there's this cup people like the cup i put the cup under glass you gotta i hear this weird machine noise i haven't been able to oh that's my car i left it on because my son's inside it <laughs> Like some people have said, like when are you gonna stop talking about that? Never. President came to my house. Well, I, I there's just no reason like about going the to lockdown. What, it's, going, was, it's like going to space. Did what? Secret Service come here? Yeah, first? yeah. All did, did all that, mm-hmm. and did they come with a uh, like a big motorcade? Mm-hmm. Whoa. 
The, well, that's the way he travels. It's not like he's going to, you know, hop oh, really? into he a, didn't a come rented. Vespa? No. Huh. <laughs> Did you, was there anything afterwards where you wish you had asked him? Yeah, one, one question. What was it? Like, moving from like a senator to that, all of a sudden you are making decisions almost unilaterally that are, both options are going to end in, in human, the loss of human life. Mm-hmm. You know, what was the first one of those? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, how do you process that? That's Can you answer that question? Yeah. You want me to answer yeah, it instead? Yeah, yeah. Did you get to, I haven't heard the interview yet, but did you get a chance to ask him anything about Wall Street? Uh, no, not specifically. Why you have, uh, you know, worried well, about I, your when money? Because he did a Between Two Ferns thing with me and that, when we were done, I was like, I wish... Well, that was a weird thing because he was. That was for the healthcare plan. That was like for he, the healthcare thing. That was the, the quid pro quo that you had to deal. Either with. Way, that that's exactly right. <laughs> if we're going to use Latin terms, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, that that's yeah. I mean, he had a thing, but I believed in the. I believe in the thing. So yeah. why not? And I like him, and I think that well, there's there's always going to be, and there wasn't much from from more so with me because I did have some experience doing politics, that there might have been an expectation to to sort of you know, put his. Uh, you know, to grill them a little bit. But the thing that people don't realize about politicians is that you can ask them whatever you want. I mean, they didn't give us a list of questions or vet us at all. Mm. Because you know why? Because the president can handle himself. Right. That's <laughs> right. So, like, you can ask him, like, how does it feel to kill, uh, kill all those civilians? And he'll be like, well, you know, there's a, there's a tough decision uh, in these. And then all of a sudden you're into this thing where, like, three minutes in, you're like, I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> So like he's gonna you know he's gonna take it where he's gonna, so I tried to just stay engaged yeah yeah, yeah. and um and it, it went pretty well what was your experience with him I I I, I tell you I were you in awe I mean because you had I to was, do a character I was, I was nervous I mean because we did it in the White House and uh, he came to your house I went to his um but I was I was I mean I was nervous but after the fact and after we did it and the video was released he. I get a phone call mm-hmm. from him mm-hmm. and we're chatting and we chatted for a couple minutes. And then the last thing he said was, okay, I'll talk to you later, brother. <laughs> and um, I hung up and I, I didn't know what to do. I was by myself at a yeah. construction site yeah. and I just stood up and took a picture of the chair I was standing in. <laughs> As there's, you have a cup sitting on your desk for the president. I have a picture of an old chair. Uh, but what did it, was, he want it was just amazing. What did he want to talk about? I was, he was th- thanking uh, you. He wanted to talk about some of my bits. No, he wanted to talk. He just wanted to thank. It was nice. Yeah. Thank you. But let me ask you this, though. when Because I had to, like, my struggle was to be myself. Like, you had to hold, you know, whatever the tone of that show was. I have to be rude yeah, to the president. the president in the White House. But, I mean, I'm a respectful person, you know. I, I, mm-hmm. So... But there was a question that I'm sure was not because his speechwriter. Yeah. Before we went in, I said to his speechwriter Cody, who's so very funny, this guy. Yeah. And I pointed to a question. I said, "Has the president seen this question?" And it was, "What's it like to be the last black president?" <laughs> and Cody goes, "I think so. Like, right. absolutely, he did not see it. Right. So when I knew I had to ask that question, it was there was a big, you know." lump in my heart but he he's a funny i mean he has a good sense of humor yeah uh, president Obama. right yeah and yeah, that's yeah. rare in that town like washington dc is not a funny town to me is that iggy pop yeah he was in here unbelievable 
What do you mean? You know, well, I didn't. I mean, I didn't know he was. Do, do you listen to anything? Uh, pop. Uh, uh, I'm not asking you to listen to my podcast, but I've been doing it a while. You know, Mark, I got to tell you, I've been on. If you remember this, but years ago, I told you you yeah. should be on 60 Minutes as the Andy Rooney at the end, right? The cranky guy. Y- you should. Yeah. I mean, that's where you're. Uh, you this job that you're you doing. Still think is, I'm, I'm envious? What? The, no, I, I mean, I don't need 60 Minutes anymore. I no, don't, you don't, I don't need, need it. radio. No. I don't need anything. You don't need the man anymore. No, I don't need the man. Mm-hmm. It's Nobody a very does. weird feeling. No one does if you plan it right. Yeah. But there's still some people that are sort of like, nah, I kind of like the man. <laughs> yeah. Well, certain avenues you need the man. I right. Guess. Right. You know, the man sort of like you know, it's literally a lot of the the reason why some people need the man is the same is a parental thing. It's like, well, you know, he, he got me this chair. And... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he made me this nice room, and I can sit in here. <laughs> so, all right. So let's talk about. Uh, but before we talk about baskets, which uh, how many episodes of that did you do? Ten. Really? Do you like them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there. It's a very. Uh, specific odd show yeah um with kind of weird dramatic undertones but very dumb humor yeah and the tone of that is uh kind of new and i i hope audiences find it okay now did you now louis produced it yeah well louis yeah louis louis called me and asked louis ck called me and asked me if i would have any interest in trying to write a tv show because he had the deal at fox or at fx FX. yeah so they were like make some shows i guess and he called you i get yeah Yeah. and i i you know my confidence level has never really been strong in it for anything and uh um i thought about it and then he and i started chatting and and he made it really easy and gave me a lot of room and freedom and 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 you know we came up with this this show about a bitter rodeo clown did, now, that was something that you, you both, you sat there with Louie or on the phone and, and you were like, Here, well, the here's some of the ideas that I'm having. Ro- well, first it was going to be a behind the scenes of Between Two Ferns. That was my idea. I was mm-hmm. going to kind of make it that. And, right. And I, I couldn't make sense of that in my head. And then uh, Louie and I started chatting. And I remember sitting around. I like to sit and yeah. act like I'm thinking. Right. And uh, Rodeo Clown popped in my head and something about him being trained in... Paris made Louis and I laugh like a like a like a more, trained clown, a real yeah, clown. like you know more, yeah. more artistic. Sure, um, and he ended up there somehow. So he goes there to to study clown theory, uh, and he he's terrible. And yeah, he drops out and goes and moves back to his hometown in Bakersfield, and all, all the only work he can get is a rodeo clown. So right. he's a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the uh, basis basis of. So the it show. takes place in Bakersfield. Yeah, Bakersfield in Paris. Did, Paris too. Yeah. Did you shoot in Paris? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And yeah. those are flashbacks or those are flashbacks yes yeah yeah it's that it was so fun to go to Paris I mean obviously I mean I, I've never really been behind the scenes of a TV mm-hmm. show well no I had a talk I had a talk show years ago but I wasn't paying attention at VH1 yeah with the hat yes Mark with the hat I was don't, I'm not I'm not I condescending I, 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 I was the guy that had the, the, the game show on the flip side of your fucking hat show oh yeah and we both <laughs> tanked together <laughs> I'm in no way. That's right. I forgot. I'm not taking the upper hand here. That's yes. We both went down together with uh, with what's his name. Well, VH1. They. I mean, it was not the greatest place to do. The weird thing was though is like they, you know, in terms of changing the tone, they were just like about a decade too soon. Mm. That you know what they saw in you or the idea of was like to make it uh, more specific to what they pictured. You know, primarily, I think white youth. Uh, as being at that time, but they they came to me and told me 
people I could not make fun of. Right. Artists of theirs that I couldn't make fun of. Right. Well, I think there was they were trying to reach out to a segment of 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 audience that didn't quite exist yet. What the share fans? The well, they yeah, they, I had to do yeah, you know, Tony Braxton fans. I just remember like there was this horrible moment in show business where I think we were both there. Maybe I'm I'm wrong. Where they were doing the sort of the big kind of like launch thing, mm-hmm. in house launch mm-hmm. thing. And they wanted me to do like an episode of the Buzzcocks live mm-hmm. with a couple mm-hmm. of people. I don't know if you were there or not. Mm-mm. Maybe you weren't, but I just remember that what's his name, Fred. Oh, Graver. Graver, right? And he got up there to address VH1, which was pretty entrenched in what VH1 was. And he thought it'd be cute to wear that hat that you were wearing, you know, <laughs> on all the bus stops and everything. So he gets up there with that dumb heck going like, eh? and I just looked at a, a room full of people who had been doing it a certain way for over a decade, just like just like this. Like, yeah. No. This is toughest fucking room. And I'm like, this is doomed. Yeah. I, I couldn't have been happier that didn't work out for me. Yeah. I, I mean, had no idea what the game show was. I, I hosted it for 13 nights. I have no idea. I remember when that show when I that, that show got canceled for me. I just went right back to open mics. Yeah, I just right back to open mics. I'm like, okay, it's a do over. <laughs> but then you've gone on to amazing success. So now, okay, baskets is excited. It sounds good. I'm excited about it now. the the uh, The billboards are hard to understand, but I, I well, you've never liked my billboards. I haven't. Have well, I that's meant- what you were alluding to with the hat thing, because that, that. But that was like that was like a fucking that was like Marky a, Mark's ass in New York. I, I mean, it was like fucking but everywhere. That's the thing with this this business is like everything has to be out of the gate big. It's like just let people find a show. Yeah, well, you, you know what I mean. The the one thing you get with FX too, and I, and because you're working with Louie, and what I get with IFC is that you, you do have freedom to yeah, do. Yeah, there's it. no, and there's no, there, you, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. They, I didn't know that even existed. I right. assumed it never existed. But when Louis told me, "Hey, they won't bug you," he was completely uh, to his word. They they have been nothing but cool. And the notes they have given me, and I not to blow smoke up, but have been really, really. I agreed with all the notes, which is rare. Well, I think that that happened to me too on on Marin, and it's like it's a gift. It's a great thing, and I think one of the reasons is is because they they in some ways have you know less to lose. It's a much more competitive market. They, there's no system in place anymore. They can't pretend to know the answers. They just can't. So you know they trust in the creators. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. That's what it, and that's the smart way to be. They're the business people. We're the the, the yeah. joke jokesters. When does it? When's it on? Do you know? Is it, we should probably. Is there a date? It's the twenty first of, of January. Oh, really? And so I don't know what time it's that's on. That's soon. The twenty first. Yeah, I'll get the information. I'll Do you say know Louis Anderson? He's in it. Really? Yeah. For a lot of them. He's. I think he's in all of them. Really? He plays my mom. Really? Yeah. Oh. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. I can't remember if we're no, trying it's to great. keep it a secret or not. I wanted to cast. Brenda Blethyn is that her name the English actress and I'm not sure she's a she's one of my favorite actresses but I never know how to pronounce her name yeah. and uh, she was not in, uh, available uh-huh. and Louis CK and I were talking about it and I was like I don't know Louis I just there's a voice in my head and we looked at you know a lot of people actresses reels and yeah it's like there's a voice and he goes yeah. what kind of voice and I'm like <sighs> kind of like Louis Anderson's voice and he goes should we call Louie? And I went, yeah. And a minute later, Louie and Louie are talking the phone. And, yeah. and I remember the conversation. Hey, Louie, it's Louie. Uh-huh. Hey, I'm doing the show with Zach Galifianakis. Uh-huh. Here's the th- We want you to be in it. Okay. Here's the thing. We want you to play his mom. I'll do it. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> how it went down. And it has been uh, a really, really. I mean, he he's he steals the show. Does he? Yeah, yeah. And I, I like I kind of want to be the straight man in this show yeah, a little yeah. bit. So uh, um, he is. It's so beautiful. funny to me. It's, oh no, it's beautiful. He's very funny. He he has like uh, a lot of siblings. He was telling me, and, yeah, uh, and I mean like nine or ten. And uh, I said, Louis, where where do you fall in line? Like, yeah, for a number of siblings. And he goes, almost successful. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a sweetheart yeah, and, and yeah. one of the great comics. Yeah, really, he's really great. But what about um, uh, how many how many more hangovers are there? We we have con- we're contracted up to twelve. <laughs> so and i i feel a real appetite out there for more <laughs> i feel people really want everyone always asks me when i told people i was talking to you i'm like tell ask them when it's coming when's it where do they go now those guys mm. yeah it's uh look i that was a that was a, was a good chunk time. of my life that uh i do not regret at all but it's a good uh, time it was uh i wish we had just done one really I think leave well enough alone sometimes, you know? How many did you do? Three? Three. And, yeah. now, we got, and now we have to do nine more. Are you doing any more? No. Okay. No. Okay. no, no. All right. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, in 10 years when this all dries up, yeah. I'm sure yeah. I'll be knocking on people's doors like, yeah. hey, I got this idea. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm still weird. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you see, I think one of the reasons you seem better outside of perhaps uh, not drinking and growing up is you have, yeah. uh, you have a child. Yes. How old is the child? I don't know. Uh, yeah. He's some no, he's two. He's a he? It's a he. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mean I th- I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, these days. You might check in occasionally. That must be great for you. You I, seem like a good father. I gotta guy. tell you. Going back to what we were talking about, Madison Avenue and all the yeah, beer yeah. commercials. Right. Like the fatherhood is it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I just love it. I have yeah. no I have no complaints. Oh, it's yeah. it's changed the chemistry in my body to, of course. to be I'm a morning person now. Yeah. I go out and walk and say good morning to morning people are the nicest people in the world. Yeah. If you yeah. want to meet nice people in Los Angeles, <laughs> go out at six in the morning. <laughs> uh but uh yeah, I, I, I can't I, I I just I I I don't want to bore your audience, but I just I just being a dad has been uh has been the highlight of my life. Do you have an exit strategy? For what? For life. life. Like, are you going to, like, at some point go, like, I'm taking the family? And we're uh, there's, gonna... a, there's a dropout scenario that's definitely going to happen where you just kind of. But you can do that if you want. I mean, uh, theoretically, like, and I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm just saying, because I think about this. Like, obviously, you're at a different pay grade than me, but but there is a. a... Oh, so you got my text. Yeah. There is a... <laughs> three of them. Like, just remember right. who's in charge. <laughs> But I mean, you could like, this is, I, I'm just fighting with this myself. It's like, why don't people go like, I'm done. I'm going to take my kid and my wife and go live a, a, a deep quality life away from this shit. But I think that somebody like you and I have a, a selfish pull to, to be, to be, yeah. to, to entertain people. We there's a, like a need. So I don't think I can ever stop doing, I don't want to stop doing stand up ever. Right. Right. Cause I feel like that's the one thing I would really miss. Mm-hmm. But all the other stuff, I mean, look. As we were saying early, there's your life and there's your work life. And you're your able life to separate more, it. Your life is more important. Right. Do you are you, do you still have a farm? Uh, I still own that, but we moved our farm to another- Farm? To, yes. So we we moved out of North Carolina to, you know, you know, Don't tell me where you went, but you've got another place? Yeah. And it's a, it's a nice place? Ugh. It, well, it's, there's nothing. I mean, it's it's 
it's just a farming farming community really and, and an artist community it's really like the two things i love mo- i like artists and i like farmers uh-huh and we found this place where it has both uh-huh. and it's just it's magnificent and and um so you got some property you got an existing farm or you built one uh, we bought a we bought a uh, a cabin from a from a, a, a um um a woman who I think was a witch. Uh, oh, great! A good witch, a good uh, witch. Yeah, and uh, it's a pretty hippy dippy place. So it's uh, you like hippies, huh? I like I like no hippies. I just like free living. Grounded? No, I mm-hmm. like grounded, earthy type people. Right. Right. I think the tree huggers in the end, and I don't yeah. mean the dope smoking hippie that kind of irresponsible. I mean the tree huggers. They're always right in the end. Yeah. They all. I mean, the tree huggers have been worrying about climate change. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid since the seventies. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they everybody knew. rolled their eyes yep. and just dismissed them. And right now, it's too late. Now it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, it's too now late. we're fucked. Yeah. There's no turning it back. Yeah. It's always great to see you. If you will, you what? Let's would you come? Yeah. let's go to dinner and stuff. Well, you know, you you and I went to dinner with a old girlfriend of yours in Albuquerque that, at El Pinto. Exactly. Fuck is that noise? Can you hear it? It's like it might be my pacemaker. Oh no, are you? Oh no. Yeah. Are you I do gonna... hear that noise. What is that? Oh, let's go find out. It was very nice to talk to Zach. That was the best we ever got along and we always kind of get along but for some reason I you know I I used to just kind of bust his balls a little bit and mildly bully him but it was not there this time. And he looks great. He lost some weight. So Folks, I don't know if you know Central Wilson, uh, but uh, she's written a lot of great stuff, and she's an incredible wit and uh, quite a brilliant person. I was uh, very excited to talk to her. As I said before, you can get her new book, Fear and Clothing, Unbuckling American Style, now. And uh, you can listen to me talk to the brilliant Central Wilson right now. The last time I saw you was probably 2007, and you were like, uh, it, you had an energy. It was very specific. It felt like you were on the run. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like there was clandestine forces against you, and you've been in D.C. too long. You're like, Are you sure I'm just not like socially anxious in ways? Well, like tell me. I mean, at that time, I, you, were, you were entrenched in politics. I was. Yeah, that would, that, that'll bum anybody out for a long time. Right, but you were literally like, I got to be cool. You know, I got, there was some part of you that was like... <laughs> like, uh, like I'm I, not supposed to talk about that. Yeah, I know too much. I, I, I kind of, yeah, I was being warned that I did at certain points. Really? But, um, well, I was, yeah, I mean, it'll make me sound crazy yeah. if I discuss it, but yeah, I was like... Then let's discuss uh, it. I know, I was like dating a senior Pentagon official oh, that was and what all it was. of my friends, and I had been in the White House press corps, and so yeah. like, I knew my phone was tapped because they actually tell you we're going to tap your phone right. for the rest of your life, and you can hear them clicking in and clicking off and stuff. So I wasn't actually paranoid, but I, it could come off that way. Yeah, well, I no. mean, if I was talking to me, I'd think I was paranoid. Well, yeah, for someone who's on the outside of that, I was like, man, you got to get out. I felt like I was, <laughs> I was like a, a sort of pivotal part in a movie. That was like, <laughs> you needed to do a Potomac intervention yeah, on me. Get, get you out of there in hiding into some sort of witness protection program or out of the country. I don't hang out there anymore. You, you're out? Yeah, I'm out of, I'm out of politics and DC. Me too. I really just, 
you know, you learn the thing and you go and you take the blue pill and you see the truth and it's hateful and horrible. And- the truth is, like, what truth did you find? I found that no matter what you do or how uh, above it all or critical you may be, you're going to be carrying water for somebody. Absolutely. And that and that you cannot talk about politics in a way that will actually engage people that you wish would be engaged like, like, like I tried to make really obscure information palatable and funny. And basically the only person who read Caligula for president, my last book, was you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I basically wrote it for you or it doesn't exist. So. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. <laughs> that was a lot of forethought on your part because you know, it wasn't like we were talking, but you knew somewhere that I had to get it to Marin. It's it's actually dedicated to Batman because the senior Pentagon official I was dating didn't want me to dedicate it to him by name. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I was in a bad place. That was what that was my feeling. You were in a bad place. Well, I mean, I didn't think I was. I was really, and you know, I'm I'm very very insatiably uh, curious. But like, but what did you? What what was it that made you sort of hit the wall with that? Because like when I did political talk, when I did the radio stuff. You know, from, you know, we were fielding stuff from the left, from the far left, you know, and from, uh, you know, trying to get the facts as well. And, you know, also keeping abreast of whatever the right was dishing out. But, like, it really gets to a point where you realize that um, it's 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 not a game. It's a business. That's right. And and that uh, there is no real representation, that the, the idea of democracy is kind of like it's just placating people who are okay and 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 completely brainwashing people who are angry the brainwashing part is the part that really bummed me out yeah Yeah. i mean and also when you realize that these organisms are just so immense i mean a place like the department of defense there's you know four million employees with security clearances in the country i mean there's no way to keep track of any of that like the defense industry doesn't have any idea how much the defense industry is spending right i mean there's you know they they just watch the the wheel spin at a certain point and the money go by i mean no there's no checks and balances <laughs> on anything anymore. I mean, the dragon has no head, is what right. mine was fond of saying. So. Wow. Yeah, I guess. And so, and, and did you eventually get uh, disillusioned and fall into a deep darkness? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, you have to, I think. But but I feel like you have to do your time with it. Wasn't it Kafka who said, you know, well, if you're an artist, you have to, you have a, a certain moral obligation to talk about these horrible political things that nobody wants to talk about. And I thought, well, yeah, Kafka, yeah. I should really do that. Nobody loved me for it. Nobody well, cared. Well, yeah. Nobody read it. Well, Kafka was dealing in sort of, you know, long and dense metaphors. Like, well, he had to or he'd get killed. But, right. You know, Maybe I mean, you should have approached it that way uh, with the fear for your life. Yeah. Next time. Yeah. I'm going to start by talking about the DOD as like an insect hive or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where, so you lived there? You were in D.C. for you were living in D.C. for a while? I was in and out of there. I had a lot of friends there. My best friend uh, from from childhood had a major program in the Pentagon, which is the human terrain system. And I just I, I was what my whoa, friends whoa, called whoa, whoa, whoa. a counterterrorism groupie. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably the worst kind of groupie. What to is be. the human terrain system, please? It is no longer a part of what we do, but it was the reintroduction of anthropology into defense um, because anthropology was just not something like when we first went into Iraq and Afghanistan after 9 11, yeah. we made a lot of really, really stupid mistakes as a country just by not knowing basic stuff like the difference between you know Sunni the and tribal Shia culture and, yeah yeah and not knowing anything about you know how to deal with oh, the so people. they needed to create some sort of program to educate people about 
the people they were killing correct. or trying to Correct. Yes. Oh. Yes. Know your enemy, I think was their <laughs> Or at slogan. least know what they like to wear and what team they're on and Or just you know, how not to offend they're... them, you know, by offering them a handshake full of what they think is shit or something. You know, it's like I'm sorry, should I not swear? <laughs> no, you can swear. I can swear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that oh, so that's interesting. So this is a, a person you knew from childhood who we went to as an anthropologist. Yeah, I wish we had the same um, impoverished upbringing on the Sausalito houseboats, and she's she, in this book. Yeah, she is. She's at in the most beginning of, of the books. book. Oh, she is. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just been a major influence on my life because she's absolutely brilliant, the most brilliant person I've ever known. She went from, you know, by her own bootstraps, ended up getting a full ride to Yale, and then went to Harvard, and then went to DC. And do you have a chip on your shoulder about Ivy League people? I used to. I used to. Because you're pretty smart. I, I wrote this book, and yeah. then I was like, fuck it. I have a PhD. I'm giving it to myself. I don't care <laughs> anymore about anybody's education. I can go toe-to-toe with most people about my chosen subjects. Well, okay, let's talk about that, because I'm trying to think about the first time I saw you, like when I fell in love with you, was probably when you were on the cover of Mondo. That was so long ago. No, I know, but I don't know. I probably brought this up before. What was like? What was that time? So it was was it ninety one, ninety two? Yeah, I was doing plays in San right. Francisco. Yeah, you're this like you're this local sort of child genius playwright, like a cultural icon. Did a lot of bad plays. Of did the... a lot of nude photographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't. I think I met you once at a party. Your parents were '60s lunatics, right? Totally. Yeah. No, they're beatniks. Mostly like beatniks, like that generation. Educated. You know, it's like they they sort of looked down on other hippies because they didn't do as many drugs. But my mother is still a jazz musician in San Francisco who calls herself the Duchess, and uh, my yeah, I need like that. And my father taught art at uh, one of the world's worst universities for 37 years, Which Chico one? State, where I was born. I was born in Chico, California. Really? I don't think I don't even know where Chico State is. I know where Davis is. It's it's sort of, yeah, Chico's like in the middle of the Sacramento River Valley where all the orchards are. Sacramento's the worst. Oh, it's it's grim over there. It was actually in 1986, it's in the book, it was it was voted the number one party campus right. in, in America because people kept dying in the swimming pools. Because <laughs> they were too drunk to swim? They were too drunk. And then like there was these people called the beer pirates. I talk about it a little bit in the book where they, they had like taken a Coors belt buckle yeah. with the Coors logo on it and made a branding iron out of it and they would like actually sear the Coors logo into the skin of passed out freshmen. Oh my so God. So they, they had to cancel Frontier Week. Which is <laughs> <laughs> a tradition. And that's, and that's where your that dad school. taught, what did he teach, art history? Uh, art. He was a you know, full professor. He taught, you know, Art. So you grew up like art. you grew up like in an educated, open-minded, They've, exploratory. They both have terminal degrees. They're very, uh-huh. very intelligent, crazy people. Well, how the fuck did they end up on a houseboat in Sausalito? It was cheap. I mean, they were trying to get me into a better school district, and they're like, "Where hey, the ocean? This is nine thousand dollars, and everybody's stoned." So it's like it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting community. I mean, it, it was very radical, and actually. It was a community that was um, pretty much like we would we would talk about it as being off the grid now because they were openly flouting uh, all of these laws in, in Sausalito. Yeah. Um, and they kept uh, like a, like where Mitzi grew up, my friend, it was actually just like about a quarter of a mile down the street. There were riots during our childhood because they were trying to gentrify her dock, uh, which was, you know, all this crazy <laughs> shit. Like, you know, just like trailers <laughs> sitting on like orange pontoon. 
anodes. And then, like, everybody's toilet was basically just like a shelf that emptied out into the bay. And, yeah. you know, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> and Sausalito didn't like that. Everybody was getting their power from the streetlight in the parking lot, and they would just run a million extension cords <laughs> to, like, 17 different homes. And it was. That's uh, crazy. It was crazy. It was a crazy time. But you, how old were you? Under ten, probably. But that you time. have the, you have very specific memories. Oh yeah, no, it was very formative. Um, it, those it, those are weird memories that you have because they're usually sort of like either terrifying or sexual, like I, the the memories that hit you. You know, it's the especially in the seventies and especially right. in that area. I it can't was, imagine it. It was crazy. Like like when I would catch the school bus every day, yeah. there would be these women that we called the hitchhikers, <laughs> who would be standing right next to me in like rabbit fur jackets, who would like be hitchhiking with their thumbs out, and you could, they they totally looked all you know, walk of shame, clapped <laughs> out at seven o'clock in the morning, and <laughs> and like I'd be there with you know going to fourth grade, you know, yeah. waiting for the school bus, <laughs> and if the hitchhikers weren't there, and I was waiting for a bus, like like coit drapery vans would pull up and honk and like wait for me to get in, and I'm like no. <laughs> No, no, I'm a child. No, <laughs> keep going. God, there was there was famous children's authors who lived in the houseboats, and you knew like not to go near certain people because they had you know short eyes tendencies. But I mean, back then it was like you knew that you know like people would warn you like you don't you don't want to go over to that guy's houseboat. You know, really? <laughs> right? The houseboat. But We're not going to name names, but you but know, they were neighbors. You know, oh, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, and everybody it was the 70s, knew yeah. like just don't let your eleven year old girl near that guy. Oh you my know. god! But uh, so what was your? Because you're you know you're really sharp and you write for the New York Times. I did. You, they fired me. Okay. Or, yeah. But uh, you know you sort of came about it and like really creating it was your own path. I mean, you didn't you know, like you see, like because in the book, and even just the part I read, which seems to be a pretty important part because it really deals with your formative years of of what drove you to sort of assessing culture and being consumed by it, uh, and, and then somewhat defining some of it on your own. Right. There's a, I like the little uh, 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 the little part where you uh, you wore a, a swimming cap to. Uh, to Oh, that, I felt that that was one of my great fashion triumphs that of all a, time. It, it was it made so much sense. It was so hilarious. What, <laughs> what this was like? So where do we go? You go from fourth grade, and then and then what happens in San Francisco? You move off the boat. Oh yeah, yeah. I moved off the boat, and uh, then I I kind of just went into. Uh, I mean, I moved into the city very early when I was a teenager, and I mean, but I don't know how far I got you. You got into the book. It talks you about where you weren't a runaway, though. You were just getting you know, your parents let you. I was a runaway. I was a runaway, but I kept. Yeah, I mean, they kept kind of making me come back. I mean, <laughs> you're a runaway, but but a car ride away. I was a they knew where you were. I was in juvenile hall and stuff. I was a problem child. Well, how'd you end up in juvie? Oh, all kinds of reasons. Drugs. Um, Drugs? But mostly just like being completely rampant and uncontrollable. (laughs) But that's what what led to your genius. That's what they say now. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I was just a bad job. But when you finally got into um, uh, the the crystal meth period, that was... I'm glad you read that part. I I didn't want to have to bring it up myself. No. That was a great part. I love the description of uh, of uh, hobbies and fashion choices and making your own outfit. Oh my god, you're gonna bring up the fish, aren't you? Which I mean, one? Oh, the we had live. Oh, you had goldfish earrings. Oh yeah, that is the lowest fashion point of my life. Was that also the lowest drug point of your life? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely the lowest. I've never, live. I've never been that high ever since. Not once. Well, the weird thing about because I lived in San Francisco only for like a couple years, but I never. 
I always felt off center there. I could never figure out what was. It always felt so ungrounded to me. Like I couldn't get unmoored. A, yeah, yeah, I, I could not get a handle on it. You can't get an anchor anywhere there. Yeah, that's true. right. Why Shifting is that? Shifting sands. Well, I mean, especially when you were there. I mean, when we were talking about ninety three. Yeah, those times. I mean, it's like this is when we were still describing the Haight Ashbury as where you know twenty year olds get a BA and then go to retire. Right. You know, to a life of broken motorcycles and black t shirts. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like I did it. You know. <laughs> For a while, it was fun. You thought you were going to live forever, and you got really stupid tattoos, and you know, yeah. <laughs> and you could afford to live there, kind of. Yeah, I mean, you could afford to live in what was then a rotting old Victorian, and you could buy a lot of rotting old Victorian clothing to go with it, and you know, at the thrift store, and it was fun. But yeah, but like even now, like I know that it, everything's changed. I was living on, I, I guess I lived on South Van Ness in like twenty third. I lived there too. I lived there too. Really? I lived in 23rd and South Venice in several different apartments. I lived in 24th and South Venice, 22nd and South Venice, and 23rd and South Venice twice. I think I knew, like you described some woman. There was a woman that I saw one morning when I woke up walking down the street that is like indelible in my memory. She was walking down the street wearing like a tutu and combat boots with a shaved head. Was that you? I probably knew that girl. No, that sounds like my friend Lisa. Like, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That was amazing. the look. That was the look. Yeah, my friend Lisa. That probably was Lisa. Yeah, I bet you it was. Yeah, I bet it was. Because there's like so many locals there. They're still around. You go up there, you probably see a lot of the people that you grew up it with. It wasn't like there was dead. a lot of girls in tutus and combat boots. I no, mean, no, it's no, not no, like it I mean, wasn't a day look for a lot of right, people. Right. No, it was. I couldn't stop. I, I was just like stopped in my tracks. Like, what the fuck is happening in the world? It's amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, I felt partially responsible for her decline. I can, I can maybe directly attribute that fashion crime partially to myself so. were you guys in some sort of fashion battle I, I introduced her to the wrong people oh you did <laughs> yeah I did. your friends uh yeah. yeah yeah i did something about that about san francisco and that weird feeling like i think you described it really well and i didn't know some of that history about why it became sort of the the gay capital and gay friendly um port that it is I thought that was really fascinating. I, how come I never knew that? Well, I looked it up because it was just the hunch that I had that the local economy. Because when I I, I talk about in the book how uh, growing up in San Francisco, I was very influenced by drag queens and speed freaks because yeah. they were fabulous fashion animals, and these were the people who taught me about glamour and yeah. style and personal R style. And then I was thinking about that as an economy, because there is a huge gay economy, and then I was like, well, why is there a huge gay economy in San Francisco? And then I looked it up, and it's like, and they they during the 40s, when they decided that homosexuals could not be in the Army or Navy, they out-processed uh, 40,000 service persons um, out into San Francisco and just left them there. And, and they were so, like, this is nice. Like, they stayed, yeah. yeah. They were like, great, thanks. You know, then... Because I always because I, I always sort of track the history in my mind without being very informed that it was always kind of a capital of weirdness in American sort of sure. individuality with the prospectors, which you brought up. And then I guess the the gay population, but how that led into, you know, the beats and the hippies and like how it all happened and why there, it's sort of, I can't quite define it. I don't know why. I mean, there's different theories about that. I mean, you know, the, the hippie theory is that there was so much yerba buena, you know, like herb, <laughs> like wafting <laughs> off of the mountainsides that everybody was like sort of high all the time. And it just created this sort of euphoric sense of community. <laughs> Who knows? That all came tumbling down because of speed. <laughs> it really did. I mean, we thought we thought speed was a uniter. 
hurt back then. No, nope, <laughs> no. It destroyed the love. And the teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so where did you end up, uh, You like you grew up a little bit, you, you didn't end up in jail for long periods of time. Uh, not, well, I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> detained i mean no I, I went to juvie and then i was in a, an institution or two yeah for but not for long a couple of months you know because i was crazy i mean i was from the speed more more must just from the crazy i mean like when i was a kid they really didn't know that girls could be hyperactive and have adhd yeah and so i was like the i was like this freak show i mean they didn't understand what they were looking at and they right. just thought you know i was i was you know evil <laughs> <laughs> so. possessed Pretty much. So yeah. you ended up in a couple of hospitals. Uh, yeah, for short periods of time when I was like a teenager. Yeah. Like, and then my parents sent me to Poland, which was a really strange choice. Why? Um, well, I think why they Poland? wanted me to get shot. It was under martial law, and I, I just—I really cannot fathom what the thinking process was. Well, what there. they presented as. Well, they said that, you know, there was this Polish guy who was living in my bedroom and he couldn't go back home because he had been running underground newspapers and, you know, the Polish equivalent of the Stasi was going to, you know, put him away if yeah. he ever went back. So they sent me to live with his family. Yeah, that's <laughs> an exchange program with to an like, outlaw. you know, enjoy the riots of Warsaw. How long were you there? Another couple months. and then How'd that go? It was very curious. Well, they, they gave me a one-way ticket and they said, you know, there's a film school in Wut. Why don't you learn Polish and go to this film school? And I was like, what? You know, so they dispatched their parental duties. They're like, we're oh, done. They We've were, done all we could. I, 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 I'm just not even going to. I'm just going to nod and you and I yeah. will wink at each other and I won't say anything <laughs> they did to do, confirm or yeah. deny. Yeah. <laughs> so they sent you off and you didn't go to film school. You, what, did, you, did you get in trouble in Poland? I couldn't learn Polish in two months. In fact, Wut is like in the middle of Poland. It's like rural Poland, you know, and it's like, what, I'm supposed to go like knock on Andre Vida's door and go, hi, I'm an American drug addict. Hello. <laughs> So how, did you come home and well, you must have been pretty. Was there any social excitement there? Did you? Were, were you... I had a very nice time there, actually. I mean, the the guy, the Polish guy's sister and his family turned out to be a really lovely family, and they were really really nice to me, and I had a very very good time and uh, traveled on a little boat around all the weirdest weirdest places in Poland, you know, Wengajewa and Mikołajki and Gzitsku, where you like you know park your little boat and then you like walk two miles through cow shit and. Some like sort of like amazing little throbbing proto disco <laughs> that looks like it was made by like disco cavemen, you know. It was just, it, really amazing. So it was good for you. It was a healthy trip. Actually, it really was. It was really good for me. Yeah, and the beer is only like eight percent alcohol there, so you basically, you know, you had to drink your entire body weight to get even a remote buzz on. So it was, pra- it was pretty much impossible to get fucked up. So, that was all that was available. That to you? was it. That was it. Yeah. So your parents did the best thing they could. Perhaps. I don't want to call this a good decision. I hate them too much for it, but it might have been productive. You still fun. hate them? Do I still hate them? I'm not, hate is not that you know we're enlightened and we're in our forties now. We don't say things like hate. I'm in my fifties and I had to, I still process this shit. I have to process this shit all like the time. Like every fucking t- every time I think about them and their self their self centeredness and their ridiculous self involvement. The me how- generation sucked as parents. Can we just say that well, like yeah, categorically? They, it's uh, like no one calls it what it is. It's fucking emotional neglect. Yeah, just uh, you, your kids aren't your friends; they're your kids. Yeah, and you can't just be like sort of like, well, this one's I don't want to hang out with them anymore. I've had it with you. Yeah. 
<laughs> but they did that all the time. I mean, it's like I'm, half of the kids that I know were out of the house at 15, 16. Right. Of the, of couch your... surfing. I mean, my yeah, I grew up with this incredibly high-risk generation. Very weird scene because I but... grew up in Marin County, which is supposed to be the wealthiest, one of, one of the wealthiest suburbs in the world. Right. And we had one of the highest suicide rates on earth. It was like Finland or Japan, you know. It's like, like just mass. Like something yeah. like 15% of my high school in the four years I was there killed really? itself. Yeah. Really amazing. Like, like not even, not just at high school, but in the probably 15 years that followed. There was just a, a staggering amount of suicide. That's interesting. And it was all that, well, that generation of those type of people who lived in that area, most of them probably came to that area for specific selfish reasons. Yeah, the hot tubs and the well, wife yeah. swapping and the cocaine. And, and that's the, it. And, and they just like left their kids like without a sense of identity or, or structure. There's these goddamn orthodontists and their sense of entitlement, you know? <laughs> <laughs> What did they do to us, Mark? <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think I experience as much hate as I. I try to, uh, you know, uh, have some empathy, but it's hard. Well, you know, my mother's big fallback excuse is it was a different time. Oh yeah, you know? that one. Yeah, and it's sort of like, yeah, okay, <laughs> but I still can't have a relationship, and right. I blame you. <laughs> it's true, right? It's true. I'm emotionally crippled. I'm emotionally traumatized completely. I right. have emotional PTSD. Yeah, it's triggered it, by all kinds it, of shit. I'm incapable to receive or give love properly, and completely distrusting of emotions. That's you and I should like go to the same old folks home and we can play backgammon for tranquilizers it'll be good <laughs> but since i i never i haven't met anybody with specifically similar problems like that but it's it's a really weird thing to you know you can forgive i guess to a certain point but then you still have to deal with what is your emotional life i mean we've obviously done okay for ourselves we're creative people we we've can worked think hard at it too i mean i know you have you, right. you are shockingly scouringly investigational of yourself i mean right. in the shows of yours that i've yeah. seen i'm always like you know it's like staring into the sun of somebody you know? but how do you get over that shit that you didn't like there, there's this whole you know that the the the, the the idea of like, well, I can parent myself now or I can make cognitive decisions to do things differently. It doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable. You're ever going to get fucking comfortable. And the bad shit still feels better than the good shit. I, it's exactly true. But this is like <laughs> this is exactly. But there's also there's so many more layers of this because I also think that we grew up and I talk about this like further along in the book. Like, I believe that not only did we have me generation parents, but we also suffered from this sort of much larger form of social engineering, which I like to call sexual apartheid huh. where I think that we have been conditioned by uh, all of the forces of the media since the uh, since Barbie and G.I. Joe you know who couldn't yeah. play on the same playground together because they were the wrong scale yeah. remember Barbie was too fucking tall you couldn't like they couldn't interact so you had the boys on one end of the playground the girls over here and then I think it has led to this and then we have all of these this, these mythologies like the Disney princess. Everybody's right. supposed to get married. You know, you have you know the prom dress, and then that's a gateway dress to yeah. you know the wedding dress. Everything's about that goddamn wedding dress. And you know, for women are still conditioned to think that you're going to get married and your life is going to be solved. And and even on even smart hateful girls like me <laughs> on some <laughs> terrible reptilian level, we're st I'm, I was still seeking out that that kind of strange thing until the fairy I fairy tale. Yeah, because you don't even realize how 
deeply it is embedded in your DNA at this point. I mean, we really do believe these terrible myths. Like, women believe terrible myths about what men are and what they're supposed to be. Yeah. And men have terrible misunderstandings about us and what we're supposed to be. And then we each project all of these things onto each other all the time. And we can't ever just sort of deal with each other as is. I don't think I don't think we deal with each other straight because until, there's too much you, expectation. Right. And, until you get old and none of that shit matters anymore. Yeah, and by then you can't you're not yeah, fuckable. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. Like, <laughs> let's just hang out. Let's just sit here and drink some coffee. <laughs> and talk about how much you hit everything. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess that's true, but like if I think about myself, I never played with G.I. Joe's. I always felt so uh uh uncomfortable with just about everything. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I like too. I just like squirrely, but like yeah, and then eventually you bust out and you seek identity through you know what 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 you were talking about in the book through how you know when you learn how easy it is to become sort of something just by putting on your outfit. They're, yeah, they're, the ways that you can sort of pull a snow job over you know but also you're community. seeking but you're also seeking some definition of self. I mean, like I don't think like when I decided to dress like Tom Waits when I was a sophomore in high school. Aww. With my little hat, just like Tom Waits on the cover of uh, Nighthawks so at the Diner, that I was looking for an identity. I don't think I had any real idea that, like, you know, this was going to be powerful or, or anything. I, I just wanted to be associated with something that seems set. But see, but it's also about how the, I think you. This is how you find yourself and/or your wardrobe and your personal style. It's like you know, you're not going to invent the goddamn wheel again. It's like this is you find yourself attracted to certain images, right? And certain, and this is how you recognize a person of yourself and then I think that you know you correctly incorporate these and then you're like oh, okay well maybe the Brian Setzer um, you know rockabilly pompadour and the really really pointy creepers aren't going to work for me into my 30s you know well that's funny because a lot of those things only happen on album covers <laughs> it's like, 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 <laughs> the rest of the time Brian Setzer is wearing like yeah, yeah, dockers exactly and you know a polo shirt with a Microsoft logo on it <laughs> I, I think that's probably true that so many of the things that we were modeling our entire lives you know, around were somebody someone else's job it's really true it's really true and then i but i do think that like pervasive media imagery kind of told us that we were supposed to dress like the fantasy because there is this fantasy that the fantasy and i call it the fantasy you know capital e tap, capital f i mean yeah. just now not in the book or anything right but uh it's sort of this image of lifestyle that you see in like rap videos or in the ads for like in Vogue or W or, or high fashion magazines where you see this impossible lifestyle where everybody looks amazing and perfectly plucked and trimmed. And yeah. Everybody's, you know, ass out in a bikini and wearing Jimmy Choo's and, you know, graciously <laughs> accepting diamonds and looking half dead with teased hair. And it's amazing, you know, but nobody really lives that life. I mean, the, the great lie I think is socioeconomic as you know I mean it's like point oh 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 one percent of the world owning everything and selling the mythology that this lifestyle exists and is attainable by you yeah and uh while this lifestyle has never been attainable for people like me I mean uh, my family used to be middle class and now we're like a Walker Evans photo it's like <laughs> <laughs> you've got the the old truck filled with everything oh my God. looking for a home the bath mats you know like on the on the on the clothesline with the ham radio antenna it's grim yeah it's grim well I don't well, I think like just by that percentage number like it's it's fair to say that really no one lives like that well i mean there i god what was that statistic and i'm going to be really close if this isn't actually it but 86 people in the world own 
56% of everything that is ownable on planet Earth. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, incredibly rich families, it's like, what does somebody do with $33 billion a year that they may need to make more than that? I mean, it's like, I don't even think that if you can't abstractly quantify the spending of $33 billion, like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna cover Iowa four miles deep in pumpkins. You know, it's like, if you can't <laughs> think of a way to spend it, you shouldn't be able to have it. I mean, <laughs> it's just power. It's power, man. And it's it's it, at that point, it's like abstract wealth. And the only thing that they're doing is keeping it from you or right. other people. I mean, right. they're just hoarding and it. making sure that you can't get it. I mean, hoarderism wasn't a thing that you know you and I heard about. No, a that lot. was the that was uh, that was the cool guy's house. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in San Francisco, if you knew a hoarder, you're like, wow, this is a lot of shit. You got issue sixteen of Mad Magazine. Yeah, exactly. Dude, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I'm I like I I'm bordering on hoarding hoarding in here. No, my bookshelves are easily that cram packed with love. Mm-hmm. It's all good stuff. I mean, you know, it's all interesting. Some of it, yeah, but how? But you probably read most of yours. I read some of mine. <laughs> I read some of mine. I I actually don't think you need to read the whole book of anything except my books. I mean, cultural criticism is or criticism in general. That's always been one of the areas where, like, I think you make it very accessible. Which I is try. Gr- yeah, well, no. it's not really accessible, but yeah, it is accessible. Why do you keep saying that? Well, I don't know. I think people, I was intimidated by it. Like, I didn't think I could just you know jump off the deep end and start reading you know Deleuze. And- what did What did you understand Deleuze? I like Deleuze very much, but you know, I also cheated a lot. Like I would, I would sort of, you know, my introduction into a lot of critical thinking was by buying those for dummies or idiots, like sure. comic books. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, those gave me some sort of solid, you know, ideas. And then I could go in. Oh, and so actually, you got the postmodernism for dummies? Oh, absolutely, Foucault. You know, and yeah, then yeah. I could go read, you know, capitalism and schizophrenia yeah. and go, I kind of get it. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a thousand plateaus sitting over there. I've talked about, <laughs> I've talked about it with three people that know that the book exists. Like I am never going to get through Kant. I'm never going to get through. You Ulysses. referred to it in the first ten minutes. I know, but I, but that's the only part I know. Oh. <laughs> that's like, I figure I just drop it in, and then I sound smart. I see, like this is what I mean by cheating. Well, where'd you go to college? I did not go. Did to not college. go at all. Well, I don't know. I did a couple of semesters at San Francisco State where I did like. Afro Haitian dancing and marijuana selling, <laughs> but I don't think that counts. And then where when and then you started writing plays. And then I started writing plays because I was with Dude Theater, which was a really weird like it was out of Club Foot, which was one of the old punk rock venues. Where was that? Uh, way out on Third Street in San Francisco, like when you know next to uh, the old dockyards and stuff. Oh really? Yeah. And yeah, it was where like Sonic Youth used to play. So. Right on, man. And it was it was it was you know before my time, but but by the time I got there, it was a punk rock theater and we did like garage theater right uh, with with dude and i met uh chris brophy who was one of the founders of uh dude uh by selling him marijuana at, at san francisco state <laughs> and then he incorporated me into the fold and then um, when dude stopped casting me because i was too stoned i started writing my own plays i was like fuck that i'll cast myself and then you, got, you got some attention like i remember like you were sort of like uh like i won a... some awards and i did yeah. okay yeah i mean i wasn't making any money but you know it's like i definitely got exploited by a number of institutions that I was very happy to be exploited by. At the Did time. your plays like travel? Did they make money? Do they, are they done? Am I plays done? You mean are they dead or no? No, I, are have they I stopped being doing done? them? Are they? Oh done? no, uh, I they I had one play like my, the last play that did, I wrote. Did Frenches publish any of them? No, French, oh. but I did get one published by like some weird other. 
lesser <laughs> play publishing outlet. But it was called Triple X Love Act. Right. Um, yeah, which I did at Magic Theater just because I, I, I hated the artistic director there so much that I wanted him to have to put that on the marquee. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that, that had some legs. I mean, I saw about 14 productions of that all over the United States and then decided finally that it was a terrible, terrible play because... Uh, even the greatest production of I, I saw were John Cameron Mitchell and Fisher Stevens and all these great actors running it. It was still bad, and I realized it was my fault. <laughs> it was like, nah, it's just the writing, man. There's no, there's no there there. Well, you don't have to tell them that they're actors. Well, I had to figure that out. You know, it's what was it about? Oh, it was about the Mitchell brothers. Remember the sure. Mitchell brothers? Yeah, they they ran this sex emporium. I have a beautiful poster. Didn't you see that poster in the no, bathroom? No, I didn't. You didn't even notice. I didn't, but I'm going to have to go back and look. That was, was what the... the play was about. My play was about the Mitchell brothers' murder. Didn't they try to make a movie of that once? And did... yeah, I was called into a million little weird... Uh, Independent film Independent things? film groups yeah. where like, and I met with Sean Penn and stuff yeah. like that about yeah. it. And then I think Emilio Estevez and, and uh, Charlie what... Sheen ended up doing right. something called X-Rated, yeah, uh, which had nothing to do with- So that. your play was based on that, their relationship and the murder? Well, I, my play was based on the Emilio Estevez vehicle. Yes, That's it was, interesting. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it was actually meta. based on yeah. the- <laughs> No, but I have a uh, casting poster. Like uh, like that was put up like on on telephone poles. Casting Mitchell Brothers now casting for 1973 film production. Get out! Yeah, really? Yeah, it's a silk screen. That place is legendary. You know that uh, Hunter S. Thompson was like the sure, night the, the night alleged manager? night manager. There we had a business a card. I think someone I know has a business card of Hunter's from when he was doing that job. That's just hilarious. I mean, he was basically just drunk. You know, like <laughs> there, drunk he, and there. It's sad because you used to see him like at Tosca and shit. Like he was. Did he influence you at all? Uh, utterly and completely. Oh, well, my, the name fuck. of my new book is Fear and Clothing. I guess that's true. <laughs> Sorry. That's a dumb question. I'm an idiot. No, you're not. But uh, but like his essays, the way like he was very succinct, man. Very I, fucking he, funny. When I was in eighth grade, I have to thank you, Tim Madison, wherever you are. The stonedest boy in, in my eighth grade, when I was a completely unsuspecting larva of a blonde person, walked up to me after lunch one time, and his eyes were spinning, and he opened Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and he said, we were halfway to Barstow when the drugs kicked in, and he basically read me the whole first page, and I just kind of stared at him open-mouthed for a minute, <laughs> and he just kind of nodded at me and went, yeah. <laughs> You know, and it was, and I have to say, I was intrigued. You know, I, I went, I got the book, and it was all over for me from that point on. Great, right? So that was the brain changer. That, and there was an issue, and actually, one of my dear friends is uh, Ted Mann. Do you know Ted Mann? Uh -uh. He was an editor at National Lampoon, and then he went on to write a bunch of, like, he went Deadwood, he wrote Hatfields and McCoys. Yeah. He's writing on. I liked Hatfields Homeland. and McCoys, actually. He's a brilliant writer. Like, I, I don't know, that movie, like, uh, it was like on, it was like on the History Channel or something. Exactly. Yeah. And I ended up watching one night. And I'm like, wow, this is a real movie. <laughs> well, the greatest thing that I mean, for, well, for me, the biggest influencing thing that Ted ever did was in 1982 when I was working at a 7-Eleven. Yeah. Um, he wrote the utterly monstrous, mind-roasting summer of O.C. and, and Stiggs. Stiggs. Great. O.C. and Stiggs. Great. He and That's Todd Carroll wrote that. I'm sorry, I'm bellowing into no, my but I'm so enthusiastic. I mean, I... I remember that, too, when I was reading Lampoon. I was I like, what the fuck? I coveted that thing. I had this dog-eared copy of it that, like, I, like, it was so, like, the, the edges 
were frayed because I yeah. read it so many times. I mean, I have pages of that thing memorized. I used to give it, I used to Xerox it off page by page and give it to people for Christmas if I really loved them. Like, that's what I gave my mom one year. <laughs> uh, like, yeah. Definitely. So those Ted and things. Hunter, man. The, those were, fear and Loathing and O.C. and State's Great Adventure. I, I, I can, yeah, and I also read some, you know, Dostoevsky and shit. But sure. those aren't as fun to talk about. John yeah. Fonte. Yeah, not as funny. Ted Mann. And, uh, <laughs> Ted Mann, though, like, I think that was probably the last time that Lampoon was good. Like around then, yeah, it, it, pretty much eighty two. Yeah, you got to kind of go backwards on that. Yeah, right. Right after nine eleven, like everybody was freaking out and buying cans of tuna fish and stuff. I basically got on eBay and bought all the old National Lampoons From that 71? I could get my, because I thought if I'm gonna die, that's what I want. I want to be. Just, I want to. I want to get killed while reading National Lampoon magazine. Did you see the doc? No, I needed to. I it's needed brand to. new. I, I think it just came out. Like I got a screener in there. It was great. I like a lot of shit I didn't know. It was really great about Lampoon about the whole history of it. I'm I'm dying to see. I, that like way. I still have a resentment against my like I, I had a second cousin who lived in Cambridge. Uh, Jane and Jim, my father's uh, cousin Jane, who I used to stay with a lot, and they were older, right? And he had the first like three or four years of the lampoons in binders uh, like starting at episode one and i was always like god you got to give those to me if you ever want to get rid of them and and he never did and one time i was at this bookstore in boston he used bookstore it was on like newberry street and i saw those ones out of the binder with his name on it get so he the just, heck out he just went and fucking got rid of them oh that is you know that's a relative to never speak to again it's almost right yeah no that's that's a crime God, they were so good, man. Yeah, I hate that. That makes yeah, that makes me angry. And also, somebody, some motherfucker, and I'm going to dedicate my life to hunting them down and killing them. Yeah. Like in the in the New York Public Library, they yeah. actually have binders with a complete set of National Lampoons. Yeah. And somebody stole the second one, where like it was the good years. They stole the <laughs> '70s. Those bastards. Gone. Gone. Like somebody just pimped it. So let's go. Let's go state for state. What'd you learn? Oh God! I mean, it's like it, what did I, you? Was your thesis confirmed? Very much so. Yeah, to the point where I kind of went crazy. You know, when you like learn too much too fast, and yeah. you, and you kind of start babbling in inchoate sentences, your yeah. agent starts worrying about you and stuff. <laughs> that was me for quite a while. Um, yeah, I, I I was looking at codes, fashion codes, like trying to be extremely reductivist and sort of figure out like what is the code of this region. So like I went to Washington D.C where everybody's freakishly conservative all the time because sartorially, you know, in terms of their dress, they just don't want to tell you anything about themselves because mm-hmm. they want to be this blank canvas for you to project power fantasies on. You. Right. So, like, they just wear the same, like, Brooks Brothers suit and Ann Taylor loft, you know, corporate secretary burka office wear. Yeah. For, you know, and it's 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 expensive, but not too expensive. Right. You know, it's Practical. fitted, but not too fitted. You right. know, it's like not dowdy, but not revealing i mean it's there's this really absolutely invisible tightrope that that dc fashion is and so it's it's deliberately boring so it deliberately tells you nothing about you know because if you look at people on the street you can say you can extrapolate a lot by looking at them you can say yes you are sexually active yes you have a job that pays over thirty thousand dollars a year yes you probably own a cat can you, you own like 90 percent of the time or all the time i am pretty I I think that if you start looking at people with an eye to how much can I read about you and your life and your intelligence and how you want to be perceived and what you think your future looks like. I mean, I think you can pick 
a, a tremendous amount of that up. If they, if, they, if it's like if they dressed like if they're not just uh, you know going to the store in their sweats. Oh no! Even if they're going to the store in their well, sweats. Well, you wrote this line, another underlined line in your book. We are all at our most psychologically naked when we have our most deliberately selected clothes on. I think that's very, very true. How, well, explain that to me. Well, I mean, because we're always, you know, we're full of flaws as people and uh, perceived flaws and uh, things that we think are wrong with us or our bodies. And I think that, you know, where, where that becomes especially relevant to you is in your closet when you're getting dressed in the morning. And so you're going to dress defensively against all of your own perceived weaknesses, I think. You know, I, de- like, I definitely do. but I, I like, do. I, I'm, I wear all black all the time because I'm terrified of everything. Really? Like, That's oh, the yeah, choice? Sure. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, I try to, I, I look all deathy, death goblin, death girl, <laughs> because I'm really so wimpy and, and well, I tender. Well, I have, I've sort of leveled off on primarily plaid shirts, but I definitely have ones when I'm feeling fat and when I'm not feeling fat. Oh, sure. no, I don't know if you noticed my drop crotch leather trowel right now, but uh, damn, I'm just going to tell you, if you want to gain that extra 20, the drop crotch will serve you well. No one will ever know. They're, they're like maternity pants for hipsters. Great. Um, uh, the, the baby you're trying to hide is really just your incapable. No your, one your, will ever your know. emotional stuffing. <laughs> It's my parasitic twin. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Sorry. So DC, that's what you learned. Oh, but there. yeah. But, well, I was trying to get. I, I took too long to get to the no, point. No. But I, I tried to get everything down to a fashion statement. Right. And to me, the fashion statement of Washington DC was like a Freedom of Information Act document with all the relevant information blacked out. Yeah. So I, I decided that the DC fashion statement was redacted. <laughs> It made sense. That's a good metaphor. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, like where I went to uh, South Beach for the first time, you know, and oh. it's basically, isn't it great? I mean, it's like you're in the, all the I don't even know what's going on there. It's ridiculous. I can't, like, I, my mother lives in Hollywood, Florida, and you drive into South Beach, it's like, what country boom, are we in? Boom, boom, Everywhere. Boom, boom. Like chrome, like orange, I, Maseratis, any, and yeah. everybody's just naked and in jewelry. Yeah. It's like Rome. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, yeah. like, what so I like to say the, the you know the the fashion statement of Miami is a sext, which I think makes sense. If that's it. It's a sext. Well, it's that short, you know. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like the one thing I felt I feel down there is, and, and in a lot of ways, because of what you're talking about, is is someone you're going there as a journalist or somebody's going to experience whatever. But but the the weird thing is is like how do I interface with this? Mm-hmm. And there's definitely parts of the country where even though I'm not dressed in any way that definitive but like i don't know how to interface here i don't know how to in dc is one of them south beach i'm like i can't even begin a conversation here it was a very funny story i went with a with a guy friend who's, who was my photographer uh, robert brink who does a lot of photography for uh skateboard magazines and stuff and he's he's a good writer he's been around a long time and he went to be my photographer because i told him i want to go to game day at Ole miss because Ole miss is where you know hugh hefner got all of his tall, ironed, blonde hair, butterscotch-legged, you know, button-nosed, uh, ultra-cheerleader, right. Gattaca, eugenics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, I'm coming over there. So we went to we went to Oxford, Mississippi, and we're looking at blondes, you know, wearing, like, these mini dresses with, like, that are of football jerseys with, like, the big padded shoulders and the number on them. And, um, 
we talked to some boys because yeah. the boys all dress like they're like 75 year old southern lawyers right like you know it's like modern shorts yeah very yeah. much like old gentlemen will right in polo and not afraid to wear pink and I was with a Brink yeah. who was dressed like more or less like you yeah. or I alternatively he had like right. an army jacket and a plaid shirt on and yeah. maybe a pair of like skateboarding shoes and they said and they were very polite you know the, the, the southern boys are very very polite but they said you they they broke it to him very gently that he would not get any section in the lady area in and around Ole Miss with right. the outfit that he had on and that yeah. he would be recommended to the alternative bar, which they took to mean gay. And it was like and they <laughs> they said yes, I one of the guys was like, I definitely had to change my style into much more aggressive preppy stylings because I look essentially like that guy when I got here. But doesn't that have something to do with the um like in terms of the uh the the cultural critique that that really has to do with almost Plan marriaging. That's they, exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, what they have to do is pollinate and give the the right. the, the, the children at Ole Miss are are pollinating like right. enormous tropical flowers at each other, and the <laughs> in, boys in the are projecting bright polo colors of wealth <laughs> and polo and lawns, and they and end up together. They do. They do. And then the, the girls go there looking for, and they're, they're, it's about mating, essentially, and right. wealth. It's right. about mating and wealth. Aristocracy. Yes. And in the South, they're very blatant about this, too. I mean, unlike the coasts. Yeah. I do find this to be a social difference. But then what do you go with it then? But from there, you went, you did some you did some work with the, the other side of the South, right? The more, um, well, I mean, not the other side of the South, but like more working class, more... Uh, camouflage wearing i mean oh like, yeah no you're talking about well I, actually that was in kansas but but still there. like uh, but there is that class up there there is a a code that because in the south i mean you have that southern aristocracy but you've got plenty of what i imagine that class of person thinks is hill people and uh peasants. oh sure yeah the, yeah exactly and they have their own codes as well oh sure the backward people sure you know they, and that's they, what hipsters aspire to exactly we, we exactly. want our beards and uh, we want to you know pickle things but but i mean fashion is very tribal mm -hmm. it's very tribal and it's very referential to its own you know three block radius i think in a lot of ways or you know your group of friends well what happened in kansas Oh, I I, uh, I thought you were referring to this uh, this passage about Cabela's. Have you ever been to Cabela's? That's more like hunting fashion. You said camo. Yeah. So I thought because it is like camo Disney. It's sort of like if Disneyland was devoted totally to stalking, killing, and eating large game animals <laughs> in, yeah. in various shades of camouflage and like ghillie suits with like duck blinds and like, you know incredible like gauge weapons and then meat slicers in another section and uh and also taxidermy that is like it's it rivals the uh new york natural history museum in terms of quantities of taxidermy but it's all uh staged in these ways that it's like this hobbesian war of all against all like where like you know <laughs> cheetahs are are jumping over you know the gun rack to attack a zebra who is then kicking the face of a lion at the same time and then as a bunch of wildebeest are like coming down like a shale mountain that's so steep that they're all crashing and this is in private into homes the ground. oh no this is in this enormous <laughs> like like if you took eight costcos and then 
uh, had it run by a secessionist group of people who hate animals um, <laughs> with a lot of artillery, then that would, and then put a natural history museum that was full of agony and um, killing. <laughs> and, that was, and that was in Kansas. That's in Kansas. What's it called? Cabela's, man. No, it's really a sight to see. It's, I mean, it's it's an it's an awesome American wonder. There is even a log cabin hotel next to it with its own water slide. Oh, so yeah. you got everything for the family? People come from out of town. I mean, it is sure. a real destination. Yeah. Death paradise. Yeah. I went to the Creationist Museum in Petersburg, or Petersboro, what is it, in Kentucky. Was Jesus riding a dinosaur? Sure. Yeah, they got that kind of stuff. No way. Well, Adam and Eve was like, they were quietly sort of like sitting with dinosaurs. Just, you know, coexisting. Yeah, just right there. Before There's the shame. There's a dinosaur eating some flowers and Adam and Eve. Before, before we discovered we had genitals, we could hang out with pterodactyls. Yeah. It was all good. <laughs> <laughs> we, we ruined everything. God, we could oh, have been a man. perfect world. Original sin. Where else did you go? Oh, let's see. I went to Savannah. I went to Alaska. Oh, I lived in Alaska for two years. God, when I was you a kid. did? Really? My dad was in the service. Oh, okay. 6971. That makes sense. Were you like over in Seaward or Anchorage? You... Anchorage, sure. What was that base called? Uh, there was a uh, fuck. I don't remember. Was he was he spooky? Your dad? No, no, no. He just uh, he went in as a you know after uh, medical school. Like he could enlist as an officer to finish out. I think his his residency. It was like a ROTC thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Like he just like at that time he could have gotten drafted. He might have gotten drafted. I don't remember. But if you were a doctor, yeah, uh, you could. He was a major. He went in as a major, and he was stateside in uh, Alaska. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not a bad place to be stationed, from what I understand. Why well, I, I remember, I remember it having a profound impact on my brain. Just the space because up of there. all the snowmobile fumes that you huffed with yeah. the Inuit children. A lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. a lot of snowmobiles, <laughs> and I just remember there was wreckage on the inlet from the '63 earthquake. Good God! That had, yeah, and there was like, and everything was so gray up there all the time. It felt it's like so gray. Isn't yeah. it a strange place? And it's it's interesting to me that Alaska is like one of the stabbing capitals of the world. Really? Yeah. I heard that. I read it. Um, and then you go into these gift stores and you see that they're selling all these like walrus bone, like like shark murdering knives, you know, yeah, that yeah. people just carry around with sure. them. Or to, so to lot... gut a seal with. Yeah, exactly. I right. mean, it's like, well, if you need to kill the seal yeah, yeah, today, yeah. then, or... you know, we've got the nice scrimshaw knife for you to do yeah. that with. With, like, you know, the scissor teeth. That's what things. people are getting stabbed with, those kind of things? I guess. I mean, I don't know. I heard that a lot of people got stabbed there because What'd a, you a learn lot of there? people carry knives. Yeah. Um, gee, fashion-wise, you know, it's fucking cold and people dress warmly. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's like, it, it was sort of a moot point, the fashion yeah. of Alaska. I mean, because right. it's very much dressing not to die from freezing. Yeah. And which is, looks, you know, very yeah. similar to other parts of the Heavy country. layered. Like, you know, Jackson, Wyoming, not dissimilar. Yeah. Just he like layering out of necessity. Bunch of polar fleece layers. Yeah, yes, yeah. And then. You know. Did you do New England? I, yeah, wait, where did I go? Well, I mean, sort of talked about like a little bit about Rhode Island and Connecticut and things. I mean, I, I, I was there. I mainly, there's a lot of places that I went that I didn't spend a whole lot of time writing about. I was trying to kind of, because I, I had to finance all of these travels myself. I didn't get a big enough book advance to actually do it right. Right. So I had to, I had to sort of pick my, my battles. Um, but sure, New England, I mean, yeah, what they call the, the cardiac belt, because for some reason, <laughs> I, I, I divided all of the regions into belts because it's about fashion get yeah. it belts yeah. belt it. regions um so yeah that's apparently the cardiac belt it's where um 
where if, if you go from Maine essentially to to Connecticut, that's where like all the white men eat too much pork. Or, Is that true? I think so. Yeah, yeah, or pot roast uh-huh. or something. I'm not sure what they're doing wrong, but they have a lot of strokes. Uh-huh. I liked Maine. I liked. Uh, well, I didn't. I didn't. It wasn't. I liked the country up there. I spent a lot of time in New England. I like layering. Yeah, I do too. I like layering, and it's always nice to get that like sort of Pantone shades of like muted, faded T-shirts going on. Where you got the ochre T-shirt, and then the faded burgundy T-shirt, yeah. and then you put the really nice kind of like matching clashing plaid tweed. over that. Little tweed, Look, bald corduroy. Mm, yeah, like yeah, corduroy. you know, like corduroy with the knees blown out. Yeah, nice. Yeah, nice. kind of like hip professorial. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like you know, I was like going John with Cheever goes yeah. duck hunting yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I was doing that for a while. Going duck hunting with no, John Cheever? No, just dressing like that. <laughs> I'm big on corduroy. Like I've, I'm so excited to cool down here so I can wear my new Filson wear. So you had a Tweedy period? Are you telling I, me? I'm still. Uh, well, I, I'm definitely corduroy. I'm still kind of in corduroy. You know, I have to say, one of the one of the times I ran into you on the street in Soho, and you yeah. looked very, very dashing. You were on your way to some important meeting. You had a very elegant tweed jacket on mm. and a colorful scarf. Oh, I like scarves. And I thought, wow, Mark's wearing a colorful <laughs> scarf. <laughs> He must be successful. I don't know. I think I was affected. No, you looked, you looked happy. I knew you were on a good, oh. good trajectory. Well, I, yeah. I like overcoats and I like scarves. Overcoats are good. Yeah, I want to. I want to see a return to like the say anything overcoat. You know, What's like that? you remember like the say anything. You know, oh. Your eyes, the light, the heat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. but like where all the people in high school wore those kind of really shapeless, large sort yeah. of overcoats. I love those. Like, I you love get, those. Because you get them at thrift stores. Exactly. You get huge old overcoats. You can't find them anymore, but they were a great thing. You know where you can get stuff like that, like for pretty cheap, is in places where they don't like. If you go to a Nordstrom Rack in a place that's like hot all year round, it's true. They've, that's where you can find the good overcoats. But you cannot find them in Gabardine. Mm. And a really good overcoat Mm-mm. should be Gabardine. Is that true? I can't like I can't dress in uh, fancy clothes because I sweat a lot and I just destroy clothing. Oh, gabardine is made for like sweaty fifties businessmen. It's ideal. It's like what rodeo stars wore and stuff. I mean, oh really? Like, yeah, it's, it's just like that really thick, beautiful weave that's got like God, what is it, cotton and rayon or something like that. But gabardine was just like when you see those really tightly. It's, it's like the thousand thread count sheet set of oh, the yeah, Eisenhower yeah. jacket. Oh, okay, okay. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and I know exactly. <laughs> like you're talking about like those Ike waistcoats that yeah. are in that thick military issue. What, like before Fonzie wore a leather jacket, right. they wore that sort of white Eisen's, Eisenhower yeah, yeah, jacket. Yeah. I used to love those. Those are, And if they had slightly padded shoulders because they were from like the 40s Holy or the shit. early 50s, that would be a gabardine jacket. Well, I used to like those those military waistcoats. Oh, yes. So I, I, I don't remember. I had a couple of those. I can't remember how old I was, but that was a thing. You wear a military waistcoat with drop crotch pants. You can gain 30 pounds and no <laughs> one will know. <laughs> I'm here to tell you. I got a plan. <laughs> so, like, okay, so after all of this, uh, what kind of closure did you get for, uh, for, your, for your thesis and also with yourself and with your parents? And America? And you America. Mean all of my problems. Well, How they, did it all roll? Isn't up? that what you set out to do with with cultural crit? Is like come and you know come at, arrive at something I'm where you're like have meaning. Yeah, me- I got it. I've got it all. I got, now I understand everything. <laughs> everything. I'm insufferable. I can't talk to anybody but you now. But like no, I I I got very. It's it was a complicated journey for me. But basically, it was kind of about uh, don't be tyrannized by fashion or any other form of social brainwashing, uh, sort of know 
how they're doing it, know who's doing it to you, and know what it looks like. You know, like, like I always like to say that like a Louis Vuitton bag is absolutely meaningless as a fashion statement because it's so pervasive. The only thing that it's declaring it's it's not a, it's not an act of individuality. It's a it's a it's a statement of your tax bracket. Right. It's, it's only a it's a separation of your economic condition from everybody who can't afford a Louis Vuitton bag. You right. Know? And, it's and like, most of them are fake anyways. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think go to Fourteenth Street. It's 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 gang colors. I mean, yeah. it's sort of like it's just saying fuck you. You're poor and I'm not. And so Gang like, colors for people with doormen. Yeah, and it's and it's you know it's it's kind of tasteless in yeah. that respect because it's that's I never not saying got anything it. else. I never got it. And so you know, and I am all for you know if somebody's got their old grandmother's Louis Vuitton bag or like you know it's always hilarious to see kids in their grandpa's Gucci slippers or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love all that stuff as long as it's got some personal resonance for you. I don't care whose label is on it. Sure. I mean, from Payless Shoe Source. To uh, you know, Louis Vuitton, who is essentially the pole star of human fashion evil. Yeah. I mean, like it's all fine, you know. Just, <laughs> just as long as you you know why you have it. As long as it it's meaningful to you, yeah, and it actually says something about you. And yeah. I, and I think that you know. Most of capitalism seeks to hide you from yourself and your community and your, your fellow desires. man. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's about making you an isolated consumer who feels like, oh, but if I had, you know, those other pants, people would like me more. And and you don't, but see, it's weird because you don't really realize that happens until like until like everyone's wearing it, and it's it, like the the idea that this brainwashing goes on and and capitalism on you know is in. It's it's part of its agenda and it's part of its consciousness, but it, it, it's just the rules of the game. But you don't you somehow like people like me. You think, well, how could it? How could I be? How could I be a victim to that? Because I live outside the box here. You think you do, but, but see, you don't. All of a sudden, like I'm I'm buying records, and every fucking other idiot hipster is buying records. I don't know how that happens. Oh my god! You know, well, the really scary thing that I found out just scared the shit out of me when I was reading Vance Packer because he's really talking about how motivational psychology that they apply in advertising treats the brain as three separate levels of consciousness and like where there's the front of your brain you know where all your wordy you know stuff and all your consciousness is and this is where you think you are this yeah. is where you think you are and this is like your super ego and right. this is this is where your motivations you you know what they are and you're willing to admit what they are yeah. and then there's a second level of of motivation where you might sort of know what you want and why you're doing what you're doing, but you might not be willing to admit it to other people mm -hmm. because it might sound like you're a little bit selfish or, you know, gruesome right. in some way. It's, it's, you, you might feel like you have some ugly reasons for doing what you're doing. Then there's a third uh, layer of consciousness, which is where all advertising and political campaigns are focused, which is into the shit, into the back of your brain, which is where... All bets are off. I mean, this is like straight to the id. This is why Sigmund Freud was terrified of all human beings for the rest of his life. I mean, like, this is where your motivations are so murky, you don't know what they are. And even if you did, you'd be so horrified by them, you would never admit them to yourself. Right. So that is where all the fun happens in terms of brainwashing. And that's what they're trying to mine. That's like, we can, let's get it, like, we can... Guide that they force. They know that so well, and they knew it in the fifties. They knew it in nineteen fifty-seven. If they and they just pull it through the other two. 
oh, and make God. you buy the thing. Oh my God, the things that they can implant into your brain now. I mean, I'm it's it's beyond comprehension, really. I mean, it's like they have your number. They dial it repeatedly. Um, they've Manchurian candidated everybody to a certain extent. I mean, to a large extent, to a huge extent. I don't think that anybody who grew up in America in the last twenty years has any idea how to live a human life, really. I mean, <laughs> we're just these robots. There's that guy who died in a camper van, you know, out in Alaska. They made a movie about him. That oh, was yeah. the only guy i think <laughs> into the wild yeah exactly I mean, like, and he fucked up with he, a plant yeah you know the mushroom killed he didn't him. have that to, was he a, didn't even have to die that guy it was dignity though there was yeah. dignity in letting the mushroom kill him and not you know yeah iraq yeah uh, but uh yeah i mean i i think that there's well, a, that's an optimistic up, upbeat way to close this conversation <laughs> i love you i love you too it's nice always to a great deep pleasure it's a fun you. book let's Thank sell you. some fear and clothing unbuckling american style Central Wilson, the genius. Oh! Yes. Yay! Lover. I love Central Wilson. Fucking great. Anyway, what else? This is it. The end of the show. Just remember, go to WTFPod.com for all that stuff. And uh, go get Hal.fm if you want to hear all the archives and have them with you when you want them. How can I not find my pick?